Mark 7, 24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. Lord, it is a sweet thing to come into your place, into your house, and to hear your words spoken over your people and to receive what your spirit has to say to the church. God, I pray for us, not only us in this room, God, but I pray for the churches across this city and across this country and across this world that are proclaiming your gospel. God, we want to see you exalted. We want to see the lost saved, God. We want to see you high and lifted up. God, would you speak to us today? May we receive you in faith and experience the healing that we need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a child, I took the bus to school, and rainy days were always bittersweet. Uh, my dad worked road construction for a Granite Construction Company. He was the paver operator here in Santa Barbara County, and when it rained, he couldn't work. And if he couldn't work, he couldn't make money, and I saw the stress that that put on my parents, but if he didn't work, then dad drove me to school. And riding to school with my dad had its ups and downs as well. I got to uh, go to school a little bit later than usual, which was nice, uh, and I got to be with my dad, which was great. However, it was also a struggle for me because my dad was a quiet man. And I remember on those drives with my dad trying to think of something to talk to him about. Try to think of something funny to say or something witty. I didn't know what an open-ended question was as a kid, so I'd ask him, are you excited about the football game? He'd be like, yeah. Wanted, just wanted so much to like, interact with him. And, and I remember thinking on those car rides, does my dad think I'm boring? 
Is he bored with me? Wanted so bad to know, needed to know, what did I need to do on those car rides to please him? We all know what it's like to want to please somebody. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you're trying to please, a parent, a spouse, an employer, a child, a friend, whoever else it might be. Maybe, maybe it's been so difficult to please them. They've been impossible to please, and so you've given up on trying. See, at this point in Mark's gospel, we are pressed to ask the questions, what does Jesus want? What does it take to please God. See, we've seen Jesus reject the religious practices of the Pharisees. They are not honoring to God. They do not please God. The self-righteousness of the Pharisees doesn't bring glory to God. We've also seen him lament the lack of understanding of his own disciples. These are people who would most likely be first in line for the kingdom of God. The religious leaders, those who have given up their lives to follow Jesus, even his own family, his own biological family is not included in those who are welcomed into the kingdom yet. But their hearts are hard and they don't understand what Jesus is doing. And what we see in this passage specifically is what Hebrews eleven six confirms that apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. See, Jesus leaves the ancient boundaries of Israel and goes into the land of Tyre and Sidon. This is Gentile territory. Now, the the region of Tyre and Sidon was known not only for being a pagan land, but they were known for actively oppressing Israel. The famous Jewish historian Josephus says that they are one of Israel's most bitter enemies. And so we're told this is where Jesus goes. He leaves the land of Israel, he leaves the promised land, he leaves the Jewish people, and he goes into a pagan land, a place where their oppression has come from. And we're not told why Jesus goes there. Some have speculated that that he might be trying to escape the opposition of the Pharisees or of Herod. It's just speculation. Or that he's intentionally foreshadowing the ministry that would eventually go to the Gentiles after the resurrection. That is something certainly true that does happen. But some believe he's trying to get, just get farther away from the crowds to finally experience the rest that's been evading them. Time and time again, he tries to take his disciples someplace to rest, but he's bombarded by the crowds and he hasn't been able to rest. And so maybe he's going to find that rest. All of these are speculative. But either way, whatever reason Jesus goes into this area, he still cannot be hidden Even when he leaves Israel, his popularity is so great that he can't even hide in a house. And so a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician, we're told, learns of his location and goes to him because her daughter has a demon being tormented by an unclean spirit. And so with a mother's love, She earnestly seeks Jesus, seeks out the only one that she believes can help her. And so we see that in the faith, a kind of faith that pleases God is a desperate faith. She throws herself down at Jesus' feet and begs for him to heal her daughter. Now, this must have been absolutely shocking for the disciples to watch. 
because they believe that Jesus might be the Messiah. And they believed that when Messiah came, he would eventually march into regions like Tyre and Sidon, but he would be followed by an army carrying swords. And so when this woman falls down at his feet, they expect her to beg for her life. And yet she understands from what she has heard that Jesus is a savior and not a destroyer. And so desperately she runs to Jesus. The desperation that we experience in life should drive us to Jesus. A desperate faith is one that recognizes brokenness and eagerly seeks restoration. See, it's not enough to just know things are wrong with the world. Look around. Everybody can see that. There is something wrong with the world. Many recognize this brokenness, but many have given up on seeking its restoration. Many recognize brokenness and simply try to cover it up. But listen, if the foundation of your house is crumbling, it doesn't matter the amount of yard work you do or painting the trim or parking a nice car in the driveway. It's not going to fix the problem. We can't just cover up the brokenness. There are those that experience brokenness, experience desperation, and long for the restoration deep in their souls, anguishing and groaning, eagerly seeking repair, but then unfortunately turn to self-help books and, and gurus and, 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 and to ultimately trying to help themselves. Others will turn to relationship after relationship, trying to find someone who can fill the void, somebody to love them. Some will turn to new hobbies, new experiences, new endeavors to add more beauty to their life, to try to cover up the the junk, to try to cover up the mess. And some will even try to go and add something good to the world, to do good for others through philanthropy and other service opportunities. But the healing for our brokenness that we need, the healing for our brokenness, brokenness is not found in anything that we can do for ourselves or anything we can do for others. The healing for our brokenness is only found in Jesus. And so we are desperate for him. We are desperate to run to him, to throw ourselves down at his feet and ask for mercy. Whether now or sometime later or sometime in your past, there will come a time when desperation will strike when you are not able to help yourself. And some will turn to the world. Some will look within. But those who come to Jesus will be healed. What are you tempted to turn to? Who are you tempted to turn to for rest, for satisfaction, for healing, for purpose or status? Where do you go? Do you go to your career? Do you go to a new love interest? Do you go to your bank accounts? Do you go to uh, uh, all kinds of of, of experience and and amusement and, and try to drown it away? Where do you go? To whom do you turn? This woman turns to Jesus. And she believes that only he can help. The one that she's heard about. Stories have been going around. She's heard these stories. And in her desperation, she goes to him and she finds her healing. She finds her restoration. And she saves her daughter from the torment that her daughter is experiencing. And it's through her desperation 
It's through these circumstances and the way she responds to these circumstances in running to Jesus that we see another aspect of faith that pleases God. A faith that pleases God is a humble faith. She throws herself down and begs him to heal her daughter. And I wonder how many of us are aware of the brokenness in our lives, but are so concerned about the impropriety of it all that we keep it covered up, we keep it bottled up, we don't share, we keep it hidden as to not expose ourselves, as to not expose our sin, as to not expose our brokenness and shame. And so we continue to put on a brave face with those in our lives. We continue to come into church and we put on the smiley face so that nobody asks, are you okay? And you might be found out that things are not okay? What would people think if they knew you didn't have it all together? See, this woman is a Gentile. She is not a Jewish person. Her people looked down on the Jews and the traditions of the Jewish scriptures. What would people think if they knew that she had cast herself at the feet of a would-be Jewish Messiah? How would they view her? How would society understand her? What would they say about her? What rumors would be going around about her? See, we live in a culture that more and more every day looks down upon believers, looks down upon Christians, looks down upon those who believe that the word of God is true, looks down upon those who treat the scriptures as their ultimate authority, who treat it more important than any other source of truth or authority in this world. And what would people think if they knew that you actually believed it, that you actually believed this craziness? that he could touch a man who was deaf and he could hear and speak, that he could cast a demon out of a woman, that you even believe that unclean spirits are a thing. What would they believe about you if they knew you were desperate for Jesus? See, the faith that pleases God is not just a desperate faith, one that knows that they need him, but it's a humble faith, one that knows we don't deserve him. One that knows we can't help ourselves and we're cut off from him, but he, by grace, has given us a way and so we cast ourselves at his feet. This woman is not entitled to receiving anything from Jesus. She is not entitled to receiving healing for her daughter. This is why she throws herself at his feet and begs. She's appealing to something within him that would have compassion on her and do the thing that she doesn't deserve to have him do. And so Jesus sees something beautiful in her faith. He sees something glorious in her faith, something he wants his disciples to see. And so he draws it out with a parable. What Jesus says here is incredibly challenging for many people today to understand. When I first started attending churches as an angsty teen, it was for a girl. Surprise, surprise. Glory be to God for all of you men in here who came to Jesus because a girl invited you to church. (laughs) This is not saying that missionary dating is okay, by the way. We can talk about that later. I started going to a church, and I was invited after church to go to a pizza joint with some of the people from the church. And the pastor happened to be there, and I I just started reading the Bible, trying to figure out all this stuff, and I just read this passage. And I worked up the courage to go to the pastor because I was struggling with this passage. And I went up to the pastor and I said, why is Jesus so mean to this woman? 
Why does he call her a dog? I I can't wrap my mind around it because everything else that Jesus has said and done is good and kind and loving and pure and holy. And all he's done is love and serve and sacrifice. And then this woman walks in and it's like he's a different person. Anyone else? What in the world is going on with Jesus? Why is this happening? See, many people, no matter how many times we hear this story or how many times we've heard the story explained, we have a hard time understanding Jesus' interaction with this woman. Why does he seem to deny her request at first? Why does he seem to refer to her as a dog? That's very real. We have to ask these questions. So we have to be mindful of a few things because Jesus is not insulting this woman. This is not an insult at all. In fact, in, in the context of Mark's gospel, this woman is a hero of the faith. She is honored in this passage beyond what we could possibly imagine. First, we need to be careful that we don't read our own culture into the stories. We're 2,000 years removed. A lot has changed. A lot has changed in five years. A ton has changed in 2,000. And so we need to be sure that we're not reading our own culture into the stories. We need to sit with them a little bit longer than to just believe our initial interpretations are the way that things are. Second, we need to recognize that this entire passage presents the woman in a very positive light. Not only does it end incredibly well for her, but even in Matthew and and Luke's parallel accounts of this passage, she's praised for her incredible faith. Lastly, and possibly most notably, though we might be tempted to be offended if these words were said to us, it is clear that the woman is not offended. She's not insulted at all. So what's happening here? Jesus is making a theological point. He's not calling her names because she's a Syrophoenician or because she's a woman or for any other reason. He's making a theological point. God's plan for Israel was always to bless the Gentiles through Israel. See, Abraham was chosen by God to be blessed by God so that Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And Abraham's family became the children of Israel. And the children of Israel were uh, to be a, a priestly nation. They were to be a kingdom of priests. And that means they were to mediate God's presence and his blessing to all of the nations. And even Jesus' physical presence in this region is a sign that God's blessing will come to the nations. However, there is that matter of theological priority, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. And the concern here is that this woman might be seen as, as cutting in line, as jumping the queue and getting in front of those who were first to receive the blessing, the, the messianic blessings. And so he is simply affirming that God's plan requires Israel to first be given full opportunity, and to do so, he gives her a parable. Now remember, uh, again, Jesus is, is not being mean to this woman. A parable, which we have learned about in, in the past, is a, 
a story that is cast alongside a point in order, to articu- in order to illustrate a particular teaching. And so Jesus gives her a parable. He gives her an analogy to make a theological statement. An analogy is specifically comparing the relationship between two sets of unrelated things. And so the, the analogy's use of children and the dogs is not necessarily a reference to the disciples and the woman. But the priority of salvation coming first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles is like in a family at mealtime when children eat first and then the household pets. In fact, Jesus' word for dog in here is actually literally little puppies. And so Jesus is making an analogy He's saying in a house at mealtime, the children eat first. It's not right to take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. He uses that as an illustration to describe the theological point. I did that in this sermon. I compared the, the brokenness in our lives and covering it up to the foundation of a house and painting the trim. I did not call you a house. But I said the experience is similar. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is not calling her a dog. He is saying that the relationship in a household at mealtime represents or is is similar to the relationship of the blessing coming first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And now this is truly remarkable because Jesus speaks in parables. It's his favorite teaching method. He speaks in parables so that those without spiritual understanding would not understand, but those that God has given insight to, those that have faith, would understand what Jesus is saying. And no one in Mark's gospel has ever understood any of Jesus' parables without explanation until this woman. Do you you see that? No one gets it. The Pharisees don't get it. The disciples don't get it. This woman gets it. She understands without having Jesus, without needing Jesus to explain exactly what Jesus is doing. This Gentile woman with a demonized daughter is the first person in the gospel to actually understand what Jesus is doing. And so seeing her opportunity... She is the one who puts herself into the story to show how she is not trying to jump ahead of Israel, but simply receives from the scraps that fall from the table. Do you see her humble faith? Do you see how beautiful her faith is willing to ascribe such a lowly position to herself for the sake of receiving from Jesus? Regardless of how we would interpret these words, if they were spoken to us, it's clear that the woman is not offended by them. Rather, she spins it to her own benefit. She says, yes, Lord. Which, by the way, she's the first person in Mark's gospel also to use the title Lord for Jesus. She gets it. She understands it. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She recognizes by faith that even given the theological priority, the Gentiles are not excluded. But throughout the history of Israel, they have often found grace in places where Israel failed to experience God. Elijah in Tyre and Sidon, the same place where Jesus is now, raised the, the, the dead son of a Gentile woman back to life. 
And Elisha healed Naaman, a Syrian general of leprosy. The Gentiles throughout the history of Israel have gleaned what has fallen from the table and received blessing. Perhaps the woman knows these stories. Maybe she doesn't know these stories. Either way, her response is exactly what Jesus was hoping to hear. This woman's faith is unprecedented. It is a beautiful faith. It is a desperate faith. It is a humble faith. It is a pleasing faith. Faith. And so Jesus says what he says, not to send her away, not to insult her, but he says it to draw out her faith, to teach the disciples that something they haven't been able to understand, that he is changing everything. Even the Gentiles will be given a seat at the table at the messianic banquet. Jesus sees her desperation. He sees her humility. And so he draws out her faith even more by testing it, not shutting it down. He's testing it. Jesus saw faith in this woman. And so his interactions with her draw out her faith further for all to see. Charles Spurgeon said of this passage, the Lord Jesus was charmed with the fair jewel of this woman's faith. And watching it and delighting in it, he resolved to turn it round and set it in other lights that the various facets of this priceless diamond might each one flash of its brilliance and delight his soul. This woman, this Gentile woman, is a beautiful example of the faith that Jesus is trying to draw out of Israel, draw out of his disciples, draw out of the world. And this testing that he applies to her faith proves valuable as it it reveals another aspect of a faith that pleases God, and that is a persistent faith. She will not be discouraged. She's not going to be discouraged by Jesus' words because she knows how children eat. She's a mother. If you're a mother or a father, you know how children eat. Like 70% of it, if you're lucky, goes into their mouths. And if you have a dog, you know where that dog is. As much as my dog loves me at mealtimes, he's nowhere near me because I like food too much. But my children, my kid dropped a saltine the other day and like in a heartbeat, Zeke was there. Just wolfing it down. She knows how children eat. Not only is she the first uh, to understand this parable, but she, she puts herself in it, calls him Lord. Whether she knows that he's master of the universe, she knows that, she, that he is her master, and so she persists in begging for mercy. Now, through this test, having been given opportunity for her faith to be on full display for his disciples to see, he grants her request. Her daughter is healed. Now, this this idea of testing faith is a common theme that we see throughout Scripture. And most of the time, spoiler alert, people don't pass the test often. Sometimes they're faithful, but most of the time they fail the test. And God tests our faith as well. He puts us through situations never more than we can handle, as Scripture affirms, to test our faith. Now, God tests our faith not because he is unsure of your faith. God knows your faith. But he tests our faith so that our faith would be revealed to us. So that our faith would be known by us and those around us. The test comes 
in order to reveal our faith through our persistent trust. Because when the trials of life come, our lack of faith is often revealed by our lack of persistence or trust. We turn away. Most of us probably know someone that in the last year and a half, because of world events and because of COVID, have turned away because why on earth would God allow this to happen? Some of us have looked at, at culture and turned away because of the pressures of culture. God, you no longer fit with what my friends think or what the influencers are saying, and so I'm out. But when believers persevere in faith, Jesus, who gives endurance to overcome the test, it doesn't reveal anything to God. He knew you would endure. He didn't give you any more than you would handle. But part of the blessing of the test is the revelation to our own hearts. The great confidence in Jesus is a blessing to us and those around us. And so the faith that pleases God is a relentless faith. It's a persistent faith in the context of trials and hardships because it's through the testing of faith that people see not only our faith, but they see God in his brilliance. So church, grab on to the promises of God. Cling to the promises of God in scripture like a pit bull with a bone. Don't let go. Persevere, endure, grab the promises and don't let go. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Without faith, the world will not be able to see the insanity or the, 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 the sanity that looks like insanity. When you cling to the scriptures, when you cling to God's promises, the world apart from faith won't understand it, but you see it, you get it. And don't let them persuade you otherwise. Cling to grace and don't ever move from it because apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus was pleased by this woman's faith. And so she received her blessing as unlikely of a scenario, as unlikely of a candidate that she was. Jesus will not withhold grace from anyone who believes. And so we see desperation and humility and persistent faith in this woman. But we also see it in the deaf man and his friends in the next, in the next story. They too are Gentiles in the region of the Decapolis with an impossible situation. See, to be deaf in those days was actually more challenging than it was to be blind. See, a blind person back then could still interact with society, but a deaf person prior to the invention of sign language couldn't communicate, couldn't receive communication. Sure, with their close group of friends, they might have worked out a, a, a simple uh, a sign language, but they were cut off from the broader society. This man was, was an outcast, not just because he was a Gentile, but because he's on the outskirts of society. He cannot participate with those around them. And so the friends of this man bring him to Jesus. And again, they beg Jesus. And so Jesus takes him aside like with the woman, he establishes this personal connection with him, not through dialogue as it was with the Syrophoenician woman, but he touches the man. Through his touch, he, he touches the affected areas that he was about to heal in order to communicate to the man in a way that he could understand what he was about to experience. And so we can see so much compassion here. 
as Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears and as he touches his tongue. Jesus doesn't always heal the same way twice to show us that healing doesn't come through a technique. Healing doesn't come through a strategy. Healing comes through the person of Jesus. And so he spits and he touches the tongue in order to show the man that it was from Jesus' own life within himself that was going to be the source of life in the man, in his broken body. And so Jesus says, Ephatha, which in Aramaic is be opened. And so this man's ears were opened to hearing. His mouth was opened to rejoicing. His soul was opened to receiving the grace of the gospel and the gateway for the gospel to bless the Gentiles was opened as well. And it's in his response, it's in the response of him and his friends and those who witness that we see a fourth aspect of faith that pleases God. It is a grateful faith. They can't contain themselves, and so they spread the news everywhere. They're saying he's done all things well. They cite Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. God's blessing has come through Christ even to the Gentiles, fulfilling the call of Abraham, fulfilling the mission of Israel. Jesus is the true and better chosen one who faithfully accomplished all of God's plans and purposes. Jesus is the one they've all been waiting for. Jesus is the one that all of it has pointed toward. Jesus is the Savior. Ultimately, he heals not us only physically, but he heals us spiritually when he died on the cross to remove our sin from us that has been separating us from him. And so apart from Jesus, we are desperate and hopeless. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so in desperation and in humility, we eagerly and relentlessly pursue him, believing that he is the one who is already pursuing us. See, Jesus went intentionally to this region. He's doing something on purpose. And so when we find ourselves pursuing Christ, we know that it was him pursuing us all along, that he is the one coming to us, that he has left the 99 to go after the one. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, know this, that he is pursuing you. And for whatever reason you walked into these doors is evidence of that. That Jesus is pursuing you with more persistence than you can muster. That Jesus is pursuing you with a desperation, a longing to be with you, a longing for you to be in his presence. It was through his humility that he went to the cross And through what he experienced on the cross was exalted as Philippians 2 says that he has been given the name that is above every name. And when you believe and when you come to Jesus, the gratitude that he experiences, the celebration that is in heaven when one sinner repents is beautiful. Jesus is the one pursuing us. Jesus is the one delighting in us. See, I began by telling a story about riding to school with my dad. I relive these moments every single day when I drive alone with my own sons. And though the tables are turned, 
I still try to come up with something to say. I still try to come up with questions to ask. I still try to come up with little jokes. I still try to come up with something to talk about. Because I want my kids to know how much I enjoy them. I never want them sitting there in the car with me wondering, do I bore dad? But oftentimes, I'm quiet. (laughs) Believe it or not, talk a lot up here. (laughs) Oftentimes, I'm quiet because for me, it's enough to just be with them. For me, it's enough to just know that they want to be with me. See, I'd wished that I had known back in third, fourth, and in fifth grade what I know now. I didn't need to be funny. I didn't need to to be witty or have something important to say. And my dad was pleased that I would rather be with him than all my friends on the bus. See, my dad was, was pleased simply to be with me. And the same is true for our relationship with God. The same is true for you. That if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus and been given access to the very presence of God, it is that faith that he has given you. It's that faith that you have, that he already delights in you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to pray right or sing right or even have a good voice. You don't have to do anything to please him. Because it's faith that pleases God. The faith that pleases God is a a desperate faith that drives us into his presence because we just want to be with him. It's a humble faith that knows how fortunate we are just to be with him. It's a persistent faith that doesn't leave him even when things get difficult or uncomfortable or confusing. And it's a grateful faith that celebrates who he is and how he loves us. Ultimately, it's a faith that believes that because of what Jesus has done, you are already a delight to your Father in heaven. So knowing that, let's pray to him now. Father, we are overwhelmed by your love, by your grace, by your compassion. God, we are overwhelmed that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for our sin and reconcile us to you, to bring us back into intimacy with you. And God, we don't need to worry anymore about anything that could separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth nor powers or principalities nor famine or sword or angels or demons. Any of these things can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so by faith, we simply grasp that truth and God never let anything pry it from our fingertips and give us incredible confidence knowing that no one can snatch us from your hand, that it's not how much we cling to this truth, it's how you cling to us. God, you cling to us. And God, so many of us in this room are, are, are experiencing this text, are experiencing this, experiencing this truth from a variety of perspectives with a variety of experiences this week. And some may feel like they are holding on by a thread. And I pray that they would remember that it doesn't matter because you are holding on to them. God, and if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, doesn't know this truth to be beautiful, 
or is afraid of what people might think if they actually believe and confess. God, I pray that they would see your beauty. I pray that they would see your goodness. I pray that they would see the joy that you have in them. We read Zephaniah 3 for our call to worship. That he exalts over his people with loud singing. God, as we prepare to sing, Lord, we're just entering into your song. Singing over your people that you love us because you love us. I pray that we would receive that confidently with grace and truth, desperation and humility and persistence and gratitude. God, would you fill us with a pleasing faith and give us confidence that you are pleased in your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.